Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Hi everyone, welcome to my beloved money memoir series. Today I have the honor of interviewing Randy Buckley and I'm gonna read her bio first and then welcome her on. And Randy Buckley is a mentor, author, speaker, and associate dean whose work helps women find their truth and be at peace with it. She is the creator of Healthy Boundaries for Kind People, Maybe Baby, and the Viking Woman Workshop. Randy also has a podcast called Sideways Truth. She is mama to Robin and in her free time untangles whales from fishing gear in the Monterey Bay. So I want to say that Randy and I met, I think, back in 2011, mm-hmm. and I had a um, two-and-a-half-year-old, and so you must have been pregnant at that time when we first met, or... I think That's, I had a, a very young newborn. <laughs> okay. When we very first met, you had you you were in the very first few months or yes, clearly yeah. first year. Yeah. And I remember inviting you to the very first Money Memoir series that I did back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And that's when you were in what you and I have described as the fog uh-huh. of early motherhood where we barely remember our name mm-hmm. um let alone anything else that's going on at that time and i was so happy that when i reached out to you again this time and i always just go on a little walk and say who do i know in my community who am i supposed to be interviewing next and you know you popped up and then when i reached out to you you sent me such a beautiful letter saying thank you for asking me again and my son's older now, and I'm out of that fog. And so, welcome so much to you, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for thinking of me the first time and and for giving me another chance. That that's pretty amazing. Thank you. Mm, you're welcome. Well, we we you know those first few years of I, I I can't even believe that you were 
interacting those first few years online, you know, <laughs> and really, um, yeah, I, my son didn't start sleeping until three and I think I didn't start, well, I didn't get online until he was two and a half, but it was also uh-huh. the timing of when online, um, you know, my transition from being local all over California and driving right. here to getting, having my baby and then moving online, you know, mm-hmm. and when you stepped into that world as well, but I know you've, had a business long before getting online as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So let's begin. Let's please share a snapshot of your life and family and work right now. Sure. So I live in Pacific Grove, California, which is the very tip of the Monterey Peninsula, which um, my husband went to grad school here about 20 plus years ago. And I came to visit and thought, this would work. <laughs> there are sea otters frolicking. There are seals. Uh, this would work. And it took a while for us to get here, but we've been here about 15 years now. And um, uh, you mentioned Robin. Uh, people ask about his name. It's an old Viking name. I have a, a strong connection to Nordic culture. I speak Norwegian. I'm very interested in um, Viking mysticism and mythology, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, I have this, I have this business that I absolutely adore, which is a big manifestation of who I am that gets to do something I really love to do. And that is reach out globally across the world. And, um, yeah, it's pretty fun. Wonderful. So we were, when you arrived in California, I was still there, but I was in Santa Cruz at that time. We were. We were across the bay. I know. <laughs> we were not that far from each other. Right. In, in our drive, not even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the day. Um, anything else about, oh, I know. I mean, there's probably long stories to all of this, but um, your journey from, I know you worked a lot. I think you worked a lot in the corporate world as a consultant. Um before you got online, anything you want to share about that? Sure. So I've, when I finally discovered that <laughs> there's this thing called coaching, it um, was basically had been the red thread through everything I've ever done my whole life. Really, since I can remember being on the playground, kids would come and pull me aside and say, my parents are mad at me. What should I do? <laughs> Second grade or in helping people kind of figure things out. And that had been, um, really been a part of every job I'd had, which were quite varied um, for a while. And I thought, Oh, if there's just some way I could do that, that would, that would be amazing. That would, that's what I want to do, but I have to do these other jobs. And some of them were absolutely soul sucking, um, which does not feel good to be in. And then, so when I finally hung up my coaching shingle, so to speak, and I had worked in, I, uh, right before I went into coaching, I had been in the spa industry so I was, uh, I had studied with an Ayurvedic doctor for years and I had, um, proctored for the national spa, uh, excuse me, massage board and, and testing massage therapist afterwards. So I knew a lot about this and I'd studied anatomy and human, um, human anatomy and physiology. And so this wellness idea and healing idea was really interesting to me. So I found myself in the spa world where I was going to spas globally and teaching them Ayurvedic treatments, but then also, I ended up coaching spa directors on how to work with staff and staff with how to manage up and, and work with spa directors. And I found the spa world to be incredibly toxic. Um, and fi- finally hung out my shingle as a coach. And 
I did some local work around here as I was kind of getting my footing. And then I started uh, doing executive coaching for Fortune 5 companies. Yeah. I um, found myself there, uh, which was fascinating. But when I, by the time I um, discovered I was pregnant and I, I knew I did not want to be traveling like that, um, it was time to take it online. Okay. And that's where our paths crossed. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I did not know that. I knew that you were doing some consulting for large companies, mm-hmm. um, which I never ventured, ventured into. I didn't know about your whole um, relationship to the spa industry. Um, didn't know that part. Okay. Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, well, which was interesting because that really opened up my door into Hollywood. And I ended up doing a lot of work in Hollywood, um, coaching and, and bringing um, the wellness work for others uh, under others umbrella to, you know, at the time we were on the set of friends and I was at the Academy Awards and we we're doing all this really big picture stuff. But so that kind of became a foothold of having developed all sorts of trust to where a lot of my clients started coming from. Got it. Got yeah. it. And one of the things that I've been drawn to you and your work from the beginning is that you were speaking about boundaries. Mm. Um, I think since I met you, I mean, I remember, I, well, I remember maybe baby, you know, I yes. remember um, us, you know, I, w- I was an older mom. I, I was not going to have children. And then mm-hmm. at 38, I woke up and changed my mind, like la- that just stepped into my 38th year <laughs> and changed my mind. And, right. and yeah. And, and then had to convince my husband um, we'd been together seven years. Um, uh-huh. And and had basically said no children right on her, on her second date you know and so right. I had to drop, I had to drop many many seeds all year. he wasn't picking up um, until the very end of the year and then we went and did some therapy yeah um, it's a tough and, it's a tough thing to switch gears into it's a tough thing yeah and I know yeah. you did that I mean my husband presented me with a thirty page thesis of why we should not have children right um, and right and I I read one word and I was like oh I'm not reading this crap. <laughs> You know, this is mm-hmm. your issues, your story. Let's go do therapy. Sure. Um, so I just rem- I just know that you, I think that was the beginning. It was like you, you were helping so many women navigate mm-hmm. these waters of, of kind of the older mama, I think, right. choosing. If, okay, so there was mm-hmm. that, um, which I was fascinated with, but it was the boundary work that I just felt like, oh, my God, no one else is speaking to this in this way. Right. Um, this is so essential in how we cultivate our knowingness and sense of our value. Mm-hmm. It's so important as we age. I mean, well, boundaries are important, you know, probably teenage years on, you know, or just – so I, I want to hear some more. I want no. I want to hear some of your beginning teachings around boundaries. And I know you're in the middle of writing a book, and I know you've been right. teaching courses and training people. So please. Sure. Yeah. Oh, so thank you for asking. And um, you know, I still do the maybe baby work today, and that was really uh, when I look at that now, I see how that was such a foundation for people dis- discovering what their boundaries were what they wanted them to be, and then how do you honor that in a way that is consistent with what you value? So that's where I really started to see um, 
that there's something else in there that could be offered. And, and I'll explain a little bit more in just a second. But in terms of my early work with boundaries, it's totally my parents. I, I've been interviewed a few times on podcasts where I'm pretty sure that the interviewer is really disappointed that I don't have some boundaries horror story <laughs> because I've always been really good at it um, or pretty good at it. Uh, and I think that stemmed from my father was in the military and I moved around quite a bit. So I was constantly reestablishing myself in new schools and new friend groups and new cultures. Um, and, my, and I have a sister who moved with us. And the way we would land someplace would be very different. She was very much uh, wanting to make friends right away. And she'd almost bend over backwards to do it. And um, that was just very important to her to have that um, friend community. Into, but where I was a little bit more discerning. And I hope it, I don't think it was necessarily um, snobbish or anything. I just really saw where I connected and where I wanted to connect. And I was not in quite a rush. And, you know, one of us is extroverted, one of us is introverted, and I'm sure that played a big role in that. But I was much more aligned with people who shared the same values or the similar humor and could, where I, where really where I would feel respected. But when it comes back to my parents, my, um, <laughs> it's a combination. My dad, I learned a, a how to not take crap from people. Um, he was a Navy, he was a nurse, but also a Navy SEAL. And I could see how, just by not saying anything, the way he carried himself, people would, he had some respect. My mom is, you know, the nicest woman on the planet, and she also was very good at boundaries. And I saw how that came together. But it really crystallized for me in starting to make healthy boundaries for kind people. First of all, um, my big tenet there is, my first, I should say, um, the way boundaries are conveyed or the advice that's given in kind of this conventional way is wildly unkind to <laughs> to people who value kindness. And if you don't feel like something's kind or compassionate or empathetic, and that's a really high value to you, you're not going to do it. You're not going to want to become that person that you don't want to become or that. And if so, if boundaries look like becoming a jerk, you're not going to do it. Right. Even at the cost of yourself. And then what really crystallized it then um, my sister, who I refer to, and she has given me permission to talk about this. Um, my sister, who is this incredibly strong, spitfire, smart uh, woman, was in a string of wildly abusive relationships that I did not understand. And when she was in the thick of it, I couldn't be the big sister I wanted to be because it would have alienated her. I couldn't say, what is going on? How can you let this happen type of thing, which would have helped absolutely no one. So I started creating all, all the things I wanted to say to her. It couldn't. I started writing down. Mm-hmm. And that be- really became the foundation of the boundaries teaching because she's this incredibly kind person. And in these particular relationships, the boundaries have been eroded. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of healthy boundaries for kind people. Mm-hmm. I, that is, I mean, it's beautiful in that you, you're the introvert, right? And she's the extrovert in this story, right? And for you to be learning and watching from your parents, like we all do, right? um, but getting such clear teachings that really worked for you um, around boundaries and that you were able to pause, go slower, observe, watch, Mm -hmm. 
um, have discernment as you were going into all these new situations over and over every time you right. moved. Um, and then entered relationships that way, and she was the opposite. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a dear sister, like dear sister letters. Yes, um, yes. I mean, that could be one version of the book. I don't know if you're going in that direction, just dear sister. It sure could be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you're already way into it, so that's where the structure has already been determined. But um, it's just beautiful, just dear sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what I see or what I would, what I want for you, what I want to say to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and is, you know, some of the people who come to you, do you feel that they also just have a, we also, we also have a harder time um, with making boundaries from a loving and kind place? Like I always, I used to say the elegant no, I'm learning how to say no, thank you, an elegant no a lot better. I'm learning how to right. say no. And I used to always add the word elegant in it, which may mm-hmm. be similar to kind. You know, I wanted, sure. mm-hmm. you know, where first boundaries are. Um, so intense and there's so much anger and we, you know, I mean, it's valid. Sometimes the first response is anger and a huge, huge boundary in the sand. And we have to back up, Mm -hmm. you know, and then come to a kinder response. Um, Can you give us some beginning teachings around boundaries? I know you have so many and you, share quotes and you share teachings daily, you know, on Mm -hmm. on social media. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, Yes. You could be opening Pandora's box. I know. know. (laughs) Um, So so one of the big things I believe in, I alluded to that for people who value kindness, even if you don't feel like you're kind, but you, that comes up for people too, or compassion or justice or fill in the blank. What's important to you. If um, that was just a kindness, if your kindness does not include you, it is incomplete. And the Buddhists have that saying, if your compassion does not include you, it is incomplete. And I wrote on that because I had been saying um, kindness is an equation that must include you. So if we're letting somebody have an, un, you know, do something that is, in, in my case, because I have such a value on kindness, unkind, we're basically, in, in, that's not our boundary, we're letting them perpetuate it. And at the same time, we have to also extend that toward ourselves. So what we're experiencing in life is really balanced on both sides. So the, the, the confusing, that was the confusing explanation, but um, really making sure that what you value includes you within that boundary because then the boundary becomes a scaffolding so that you're creating more of that value in your life Hmm. yeah okay i know there's so many directions we can go here um around the boundaries work i I think you know i mean this may be obvious but do you see it as a practice this is something that Mm -hmm. we're practicing daily weekly monthly over and over in all our relationships um, and, and work, um, people have said to me over the years, you're so good with your boundaries. And I'll say, I've been practicing this for years. And a lot of my learning came from overstepping my own mm-hmm. boundaries or violating something that wasn't right for me right. and learning from it over and over, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a practice. And, and, you know, when I teach healthy boundaries for kind people, I have this thing I call 
the um um what do i call it i don't remember what i call it all of a sudden but i use metaphors and analogies to teach the boundaries and so one of them where we start is what do boundaries actually mean yeah because i think we have this definition and that's where if the definition doesn't feel good you're not going to do it so i have people that really define what they want boundaries to mean i'm not pedantic i'm very open <laughs> to what that definition is because it has to work for them or it's not going to work so when people you know we work on defining that and, and what we want it to be and what it will afford us and when people cannot come up with an idea yet and it, that's the thing it's a working definition it can change over time i say just let boundaries mean respect and see what changes from that in and of itself. And sometimes that's enough or it might change. But one of the uh, the metaphor methodologies, that's it. Um, I use metaphors and analogies. And w- another one I think is really important is that boundaries are like a spine. They must be able to bend and flex to support you. So I think a big hang-up we have on boundaries is we think if we initially, you know, whatever we initially say or initially set that we have to adhere to that same thing throughout life. Mm, that they can change. And they have to change. They have to change. They have to change. Yes. They have to be able to evolve. Because like a spine, a spine affords us a lot of a lot of um a spine can afford us a lot of flexibility, but at the same time it's giving us structure. Yes. So it has to be able to to ebb and flow because the it's never the same river twice. You know, we'll never walk into that same thing. So the boundaries, whatever they are, how you define them, have to be able to meet you in the moment as opposed to, oh, gosh, if I do anything different, not I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I want to give one example, and then I, I want to – and then we'll continue. Sure. Um, I mean, so one example that's coming up for me happened just recently. Someone asked me to be on a, a radio podcast show. I looked at it, looked great. And then um, they wrote back and said, okay, your 10-minute portion will be here. And I knew right away 10 minutes isn't my thing. I like right. at least 30 minutes to an hour. I like to go deeper, slower, right? I don't like soundbite, quick, fast-paced things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote back right away, and I said, you know what, 10 minutes is my thing. Thank you again, but I'm going to say no thank you. And if you want a longer thing, you know, if you want to do a longer podcast, I'm here, you know, and I'm happy to send you my book. And the, 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 co- the host wrote me back one more time saying it will be fun. I honor your, I honor you and it will be really fun. And I, and I wrote him back in again saying thank you, but this is not, this is not fun for me, you know. Sure. Like, the fast pace and he wrote and I said I turned 50 this year and I'm needing to be really clear about what works and what doesn't and you know I said it in the best you know in the kindest way that I could right and just thanked him again but I just said this really doesn't work for me again if you want to do something longer he wrote me back and he said if only all people could be as clear as you yep. are I am so happy to hear how clear you are about what works and what doesn't thank you I wish you the best I was like, boom, you know, yep, I love it. response now. Nicely done. Nicely done. Right. And his side too, nicely but yeah. you know, more n- nicely done in my end, but I'm, I've been doing that over and over and over for years mm-hmm. and I still get tripped up. I still had to say sure. husband and online business manager. I'm going to say no to this. Is it okay? And they're like, okay, of course they're like, you don't need to ask that. Right. And, but I needed a moment and then I said no. And, mm-hmm. and so what do you do in those moments when you're really clear and say it in a calm way and kind way and the person comes back 
so pissed off. Like, how dare you have boundaries? Because I've, you know, of course, we've, I've gotten every kind of response. Um, so how, how do you speak to that? I've heard you say sure. we can't be the keepers of other people's responses. And or you say that very differently. How do you, how, yeah, how do you, how do you support people around that? It's, that's such a great question because, and first of all, that was really well done. And I love that it was honored. And, you know, clarity is an act of kindness, just like I think boundaries are an act of kindness. So when you assert something or communicate it, articulate it, what have you, and it comes back like the way you're, you're saying it was, you know, how dare you type of thing. People so often think that if they get any pushback at all, it means they can't have a boundary. No, pushback is part of the process. So when I f- feel somebody pushing back, say, how dare you or something like this, um, it, I'll, I'll lean into my values quite a bit and how I respond because um, I, I think values are boundaries in action. Um, and for me, it would be a lot of humor, it might be a slight irreverence, um, but ultimately it will be respectful. So that's how I would respond because when I honor the values the values are honored. I don't need somebody else to be honoring them for them to be honored, yeah. to honor my boundaries. So it's also really important to, I think, the distinction of when you're in that position and, and when it's really hard, is the distinction of there's a difference between somebody not getting what they wanted <laughs> and somebody just being upset. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And so often people just didn't get what they wanted. Yes. But um that's on them yes it still can feel crappy on our end for sure and and boundaries are like a muscle it'll build you know your confidence and your skill and your ability to um bounce back from that will get stronger over time the more you do it but really that kind of showed you yeah that wasn't something i wanted to be a part of anyway look at that (laughs) true very yeah yeah true okay Very good. I can give you hundreds of examples um, <laughs> where I've gotten wonderful response and where I've gotten people be really upset, you know, sure. and, and and I'm mostly okay with all that at this point. Sure. But, um, so um, I want to segue into some of your own money memoir and your own story. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any beginning thoughts of how boundaries connect with money work. Um, and then we can go more into your own story. It's, yeah, there could be a whole um, healthy boundaries with money <laughs> take, which we do look at to some degree, but um, there, it goes so deep, the boundaries uh, around money. And, and at the time we're recording this, um, you know, we're, a lot of people are thinking about gift getting and what's coming up. And here's just an example of how I think about boundaries and money. It's no gift to another person to go into debt in order to give them a gift. Okay, yeah. so I think often this um, this time of year, or whenever we feel like we have to show our, our our love or whatever, we feel like we really have to overextend ourselves through our finances in um, in order to for people to to get the gravity of our love or um, just even know it. So the boundaries and money, you know, I'm, I'm kind of I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot a little bit because I said I was pretty good at boundaries. The thing is not when it came to money. Okay. That, that was probably my biggest mm. um, challenge. But 
Yeah, I think I may have gotten a little lost there. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. We'll go into editing. Sorry. Go into your own story, and it will. I'm sure something about this will be revealed, you know, or shared. Um, And I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I mean, what you're also just starting to speak to is Mm -hmm. the concept of overgiving, Um, Mm -hmm. and and that you can overgive, and you can. And and you can be too generous. And giving and generosity are wonderful. Right? They're, they're a wonderful thing. They're wonderful parts of our world. Um, but you can overgive and be too generous um, at the detriment of where you're at financially in right. this moment, right? So right. that is one clear boundary um, that I that I've seen over the years too. That some people more based on their personality style. I mean, it can happen mm-hmm. to any of us, but um, um, maybe I shouldn't go into the Enneagram, but it's coming up. But the Enneagram <laughs> loves to give, you know, right. and loves to overgive, and they really have to watch that, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And but, so I also often look at the other side of it. I mean, my, my podcast is called Sideways Truths because I kind of turn things around sometimes to, to mm-hmm. that's my perspective. And if I'm receiving something that I know somebody, it costs them, <laughs> but, you know, they overgave in order to do something, I actually feel pretty awful. Mm. I That doesn't feel good to me that somebody put themselves in that position or felt like they had to in order to feel like that's what would be appropriate um, to give me or was worthy or whatever the story is um, or the idea is right there. That also doesn't feel good, too. So I don't want somebody to feel like they have to implicate, implicate me in that overgiving. That's just not so fun on this end. But when I really think about, um, I'll just go into my own story here. Yeah. I got into tremendous debt trouble and money trouble right around the age of 18 or 19. To... to you know, feeling pretty awful about myself. And it and, and I was there for years. And when I really looked back at that, it was because I was trying to be independent. Mm. I had such a high value on independence that I was, um, I didn't want to, not that people are offering to pay for a whole lot, but I, I'll pay for this. No, I'll pay for this. I'll pay for this to prove to myself. I thought I was proving to others, but to also prove to myself how autonomous and how sovereign and how independent I was, it really let me dig myself into a hole. And even when um, when I did get married and, you know, my parents are like, you know, what let's talk about this in terms of the finances. Like, oh, no, no, I'll pay for it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And because I had this idea around that's what a feminist was, <laughs> all these ideas around that I was independent and it dug myself into a massive hole, which, you know, interestingly enough and ironically made me feel wildly dependent. And so that is a situation where, and probably a really good learning for me of where I valued independence, but I also so wanted to prove that, but then I did not show, uh, I did not share that value with myself uh, working toward independence for myself. I didn't include myself in that equation, that boundary. I was only looking one direction of like how other people would see it or how I would feel as opposed to what the actual effects were to myself. And it took it, uh, I went to consumer credit counseling, um, bald <laughs> in the office, bald on the phone. Um, it was a pretty, pretty bad time for, for years. And then I got out of it. It was really, really tough. So 
I just find it so ironic that the thing I thought it was doing, the independence or uh, uh, autonomy, it had just the opposite effect in the end. Well, you were 18, 19 years old. You're, right. you're still so young. And just... and that's a little older, too, but <laughs> I, was, I was really in it at that point. Okay. Yeah. It began then and moved all the way into your 20s. You Absolutely. know, and yeah. we're trying to individuate, mm. and it may come out all sideways, you know, <laughs> hence the name of your podcast. Right. And it may just come out sideways and all convoluted Mm -hmm. and not be clear the best way to do it so one of my questions and we'll go back but one of my questions is what is one really big money challenge that you had to go through and how did you deal with it and how did you overcome it and tell us all about it so you're going right there um so i want to hear i want to hear more about this and then back up to more of your childhood too but this was i mean you were getting a credit card um, at 18, 19. Right. And it was so that you can individuate mm-hmm. from your parents or family of origin um, mm-hmm. and try to be independent. And you got into a relationship with, right, with the banks or with credit card companies. That was the new relationship. Absolutely. And I really had every intention of, you know, I am this incredibly responsible person. Look at me. And I, I, I never got into it like probably everybody to say, you know, let me go wild and be irresponsible. I really thought I could handle it. <laughs> so I thought, you know, oh, this job I have will continue or something like that. I, I just, but between fees and, and all of that, and then there was so much shame buried. It was, it, and then that shame was a secret, which compounded and then became more shameful. So what ultimately helped, actually, I remember very clearly um, a conversation with a family member who said, who I really admired how they handled money and they really <laughs> had had absolutely no wealth up, up until a certain point and they, um, so things changed. They said to me, Oh yeah, we almost lost the house, lost, lost the house. So what? And it was kind of this me too thing. It was the first, it was like somebody put an oxygen mask on me at that moment. Mm. Like this person who I admired so much was maybe in a different way um, at the point where you felt like you were going to lose everything, potentially your life. When they were at that point, it was like the first time I had an oxygen mask in in terms of money and I could start breathing deeply saying, okay, if they can do it, there's there's hope for me. And that started the dialogue in a lot of my reading around money, but started the dialogue with people very close to me about the pickle I had gotten myself into um, but there was so much shame. I actually thought I was going to die of shame. Yeah. Yeah. And how old were you? Because for me, we're all different ages of when we sure. wake up, you know, I mean, it wasn't until 28, 29 for me that I started, my school loan came due and that's right. when I realized <laughs> I have no relationship to money. I've been throwing out my bank statements all through graduate school because right. what do you do with them? And on and on and had my own version of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when I that was when I just first started waking up. Um, right. And I think a, a lot of us, it takes a while for us to become adults. Um, and money is still one of the last places where we be, step into adulthood. You know, however we define that um, is around money. So um, was this a 10 year journey? Was this longer? What? Tell us a little bit about what, when did you get that oxygen mask? So it's probably in my mid to early twenties. 
Okay. When that conversation happened. And I have to say, I think it's going to be a lifelong journey. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because in, in terms of constant um, making good choices and, and making sure I'm honoring my boundaries of who I want to be in the world and how I want to show up. But boy, can it heal. <laughs> it's it's actually almost dumbfounding how much it can heal. But that, when I started really looking at it and yeah, it was probably, I, I was married, it was in my mid-20s Okay. where it started to change. And I still didn't know how I was going to get out of it. And, you know, I lived, uh, we were in, my husband was working for a lot of rural and social justice. And at that point, right after we got married, we were looking, working, um, we were living on a reservation in Nebraska. And the only job I could get at the time was $2 an hour tending bar. Oh. 2.13, actually, um, an hour tending bar. So that wasn't actually helping the situation. <laughs> She's kind of compounding it. So, it took a long time, even though I started to have that wake up and started to do some healing around it, for situations to actually then change. Uh, it took a substantial uh, amount of time, but it ha- but it happened. Okay. Yeah. Let me hear a little bit more to happen. I mean, here, I just want to honor you were in your 20s. You know, you, you got <laughs> married young. You were, I yeah. mean, still so young. Maybe we'll teach our children or are teaching our children how to have a different relationship to money, how to talk about money differently, how to work with credit cards, mm-hmm. you know, things that are my parents didn't necessarily teach me. I want to hear more about what you were taught. But most of us, our generations, they were, it wasn't, um, you know, financial literacy wasn't passed down. Right. Um, or parts of it were, but not the full picture, right? right. So you were in your mid 20s, I mean, young 20s also. Mm-hmm. Um, did you not share any of your debt at first with your husband because of the shame? Initially, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or he was aware of it because he also had student loan debt as well, um, but not not the degree of it. By by any means, it was too overwhelming to talk about. I mean, it was, at one point, I actually didn't even open the statements. Um, yeah. And that wasn't, you know, and I was so, the shame that really came from hearing other people talk about uh, others with money problems, how irresponsible they were. I was like, no, I, I can't. It wasn't just being irresponsible. It was just this incredible shame in the overwhelm of seeing how am I going to cover this when I make this um in in those things yeah so it wasn't certainly wasn't a topic i'd bring up all that often um and one i've tried to steer away from um because so much of my identity was was wrapped up in that and in addition to the oxygen mask what was what started you on the path of you know opening that mail um, peeking at the numbers, mm-hmm. looking at the interest rates, right? Deciding, did you choose to consolidate? Um, mm-hmm. What, yeah, what did you do? Um, knowing that this is a lifelong journey, you know, but what did you do um, to really start looking? And what handholding mm-hmm. did you get? And how did you start steering the ship in a different direction? So I started having some really good conversations with my parents, who. Um, I had been on in hard times and knew what that was like. And there was never an offer to bail me out financially. That's not who they were. You're very much, you know, you got to do your, we'll support you mentally and emotionally. Um, but you've got to do the rest of the work uh, yourself. So it was really being able to talk to them much more honestly and not have to hide how I, you know, really the situation I had gotten in. That was really 
you know, the beginning of the oxygen mask, but also <laughs> an oxygen tank I could start to work from. And then at the, the time I looked at, I started reading all the books I could about money. Susie Orman's book had just come out then and she was on Oprah. Uh, that was a big one for me. Um, your money or your life was huge for me. Um, that's a great one. That's a fantastic one. And I'm trying to think of some of the others, but those were two at the time uh, that were really helpful. And I went to consumer credit counseling. I, I gathered all my stuff. And when I look at the balance now, it wasn't that big, but it was well beyond what I could handle at the time, particularly based on what I was making. Um, I went to consumer credit counseling and um, the lady there did not judge me. Yeah. And that I think was probably the biggest thing not to be looked at as, you know, you're a complete loser, irresponsible, what happened. You know, I wasn't getting medical care because I, w I was afraid to <laughs> incur any additional costs. Um, it, was, it was a tough time, but it was that consumer credit counseling which then paid it off. Or, or over years, you know, they got me in the payment plan. I could, it was still a big stretch, <laughs> but I did it. And that was amazing. What, what was the time from I hear a lot, three years or five years? I think they generally work on a three-year plan, um, or, or at least the, where I was working. So it was, that was a three-year plan for that, those particular deaths. And there were other things I had to look at later, but those were the ones that were uh, quite stifling. Do you know if that credit card counseling place is still around and would you recommend them? I think so. So this was almost, this was quite a while ago, almost you know, 20, 25 years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, they may, it is a nonprofit organization. Um, I think it's consumer, or at least it used to be consumer credit counseling. But, um, you know, when we were living on a reservation, it was an hour and a half drive just to get to mm. <laughs> a, some, a store that wasn't a convenience store um, for a while. And um, so it was quite a hike to get there. And I remember not sure if I had enough gas money to get there. Um, but it was the beginning of actually just looking at it. And tell us a little bit about the road out, the road paying it back. Mm -hmm. um, what changes needed to happen inside of you? And also, what is your relationship to money like now knowing that this is a lifelong journey and we're fine-tuning every year right right um once i saw i could do a plan um and had that you know got past the shame of <laughs> talking about uh, you know getting really looking at the numbers once i saw the plan i i was never late on a payment i always was able to do it like i said sometimes it's a stretch but i would um at the time they um uh, what was it they only took they didn't take checks. What are, um, what's it called? Money order. So yeah. every month I had to go to the bank with my sum and get a money order. And you know, that I remember being a little embarrassed about that sometimes, but we got there. We got to that place where that was, um, I, I paid it in full and took care of that. So it was little successes like that, which was actually a pretty big success at the time, but successes that built my confidence. And you know, I also, because of that, had this story of I can't handle money. Oh, gosh, I better not make any then. I won't be able to handle it. So um, I had to prove to myself that I could, and that came through experience. I also, you know, early in my coaching career, Barry, I was barely charging anything. Okay. And I, um, you know, another component, I think, is I could see coming in is really the environment we were in. So I mentioned my husband. Um, 
he is a nonprofit executive now. And some of the nonprofits he had worked at or the nonprofit community, they were coming from a very, what I would say, they felt like they had to operate in poverty because the people they served did. Yes. And that that wouldn't be right if they didn't have that, uh, you know, if it was any different. And so it was really that idea of we must be um, almost operate in poverty to be able to serve ideas. I don't want to say permeated, but it really infected a lot of things. And so when I started making some moves and realizing that actually I might be one of the best coaches in the world <laughs> you know, in my areas, um, I finally started charging for it. And then when I was working with the Fortune 5 companies, I saw what the agency was getting based on my pay. I was like, wow, <laughs> there's a big difference here. And if I really want to be able to do this, I have to charge enough to be able to do it. And so there are a lot of realizations like that on the way that now seem very elementary, but they were huge breakthroughs at the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. And your work has been so good at fostering that. Um, and I know you're so good about um, also talking about other people's money work. Um, uh, Denise, who we both know, Duffield Thomas has been really great. Um, Morgana Ray has been really helpful. And what you're doing is making it possible and also really breaking down that it's not just you. Right. Yeah. right. We we all have money yes. stories and strengths and challenges and mm-hmm. shame. And, and and that this also, these little seemingly baby steps are really huge. They're huge yeah. steps um, for us at this time um, mm-hmm. from how we grew up and the time, you know, yeah, that we grew up in and where we are now. And so for you, you know, where you're working in the nonprofit world, for me in the social work, Mm-hmm. The world, it was the same thing. It was right. trying to try and make it on eleven dollars an hour, working for right. you know. Um, yep. Okay, um, can't do any, can't get a massage with that. Can't yeah. you know? Oh. <laughs> um, I'm serving a community and serving them so well, and you know that was what moved me out of um, uh, the idea of actually I want to make some money because yes. you know I, I need self care if I'm going to be able to serve in this way. Right. Um, and on and on, but also um, in in charging, seeing what people around us are mm-hmm. are charging, also um, seeing other ways. Like if we charge more, mm-hmm. um, and I know it, it, it and, I, and I would never say, and I know you would never say, charge what you're worth. No. Um, there's so <laughs> many factors that go into right where the right. But there's so many factors. That How go do we into. quantify who we are as a human? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. Cannot. We cannot, but that we can move that money in so many other directions if we are being paid well. It's an it's a magical thing. Redistribution of wealth. Ooh, it is. It's wonderful. I love it. And being able to move that money around. And you know, another thing I didn't mention that probably should, because I, I I'd like to be very transparent and honest. Um, all through this money. Uh, history i was dealing with substantial depression okay um which probably exacerbated it um the money issue but also exacerbated the depression (laughs) you know when we talk about um we read now about people making a living wage as a way to help their mental health there's a huge correlation there um just to get your basic needs met is you know substantial so 
it really, and I never got the memo that depression was something to be ashamed of. <laughs> My family is very open. Uh, I could talk to them about that. They recognized it right away. So I've been very open about navigating that throughout, you know, depression, throughout um, all my different journeys. But that really, the, the money issue really impacted that, which then made the dealing with the money issue wildly challenging. Yeah. So let's talk about that sure. for a moment. Um, because there's another woman that I interview um, during the series, um, Manisha Takor, who shares very openly on her site. She's a financial planner, and she shares very openly. She was diagnosed with um, being bipolar, mm -hmm. having that chemical imbalance, and shared her journey about that. Sure. Um, and that journey is when you're in the mania phase, you're working 60 hours a week, and right. that's normal mm -hmm. <laughs> in the financial services world. You know, or the coaching world, and you're thriving. You know, <laughs> some level financially, uh -huh. not on a mental health level, right? So, right. it's that version of that, and then the other version was depression. And we spoke about it a little bit. I wanna, I, I wanna um, uh, speak about this a little bit more because we were saying I used to see with depression some of my clients that it was really hard for them to follow through and create a money practice and pay bills on time and track their numbers. And I'd give them some homework, you know, to do in between our sessions. This is when I was training people on bookkeeping systems, you know, QuickBooks in my earlier days, and they wouldn't do anything in between sessions. And I didn't know how to necessarily work with that, even though my right. background was mental health. I was like, wow, how do I support right. people around these, these basic which are, you know, not easy, but money practices. Right. That um, would have been me <laughs> who didn't do the, yeah. the things between sessions. Absolutely. So there's that, but there's also more. I'm hearing, um, tell me more about your relationship to work or how much you can work or the hours or mm -hmm. when you were going through a dep depressive time, maybe you weren't making money during that time. Or can you share more? about how that has impacted your relationship to money, um, the challenges of that, but also as you've learned how to honor your strengths and challenges and really who you are, how have you been able to create your work? Um, I, have, yeah. Go ahead. I have been at my best mental health when I'm doing the things I'm good at and when those things are seen. Okay. Valued and appreciated. And a lot of the jobs you have, whether it's starting out or, you don't think you can do what you want to do or you're just not there yet. Don't allow you to do your best work. You know, sure, you can still be polite or respectful, things like that. But you're not creating. You're not necessarily being generative. And we are generative souls. We want to create um, whatever the work is inside of us that wants to come out. So when we're doing what feels menial and soul-sucking work, we're paying the bills, which is sometimes absolutely, you know, something we need to do um, just to get the money in. I get that part. But at the same time, I think that when we're not being seen and those gifts aren't being put to use, that's when we feel like we're starting to die inside slowly. And at the time, I think it's really hard to put your, your finger on what exactly that is. But I started to notice that when I was in environments, particularly the summer camp, I work at every summer, um, where people saw me and really appreciated what I did, I would thrive. 
in my thriving was so connected to um you know there was a cap at what you can make on summer at summer camp but it was so connected to my earning potential that i really you know eventually left jobs that i would just call soul sucking because it felt like sure i'm earning a little bit of a paycheck but it actually is costing me much more than that so to in, hopefully to answer your question how do I navigate that? I do work I love now, and I am pretty privileged to be able to say that. It took a long time to get here, yeah. and, um, you know, I've had to build that from scratch. And, yes, I have a partner, um, and so I had, because I'm in the States, health insurance was an issue. But so health, in, you know, our basic at the time health insurance covered some things. But other than that, I've had to do it all myself. And you know, I even found the type of coaching I was doing, you know, when, it, when I was initially starting out and coaching people who were frustrated because they couldn't get the garage cleaned and they've been trying. That was not my strength <laughs> right. going there. But it was when I could get into uh, the coaching where the topics were complex and rich and deep. We could go deep and I could really tap into my intuition and my skills and all these things. It felt like magic between a client and I, and it's too bad you, we don't have a, a camera re- recording right now because my, my arms are gesticulating all over the place to show you the magic. I found that when I was there, my earning potential also went up. So, okay. yeah, so I, so I'm thriving now. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say on, on many levels. And it's, and it's fine tuning over and over and over and all these baby steps. Constantly. Yes. Yep what you're good at, what you suck at, mm-hmm. um, your yeses, your noes, mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. What, what makes you happy and realizing you were charging too low for lots of different reasons mm-hmm. um, and increasing that over the years, which is a whole other, you know, conversation, but related. And, right. and, and so it, it's just been a journey. It's not, absolutely. It's, it's a long road and a long journey. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Are you able to have systems now and practices in place? There's, there's, you know, there's no right system. There's no great right practice. It's whatever works for you. Exactly. Um, Uh, Yes, I do. I do now. And that's going to be another thing, you know, we're going to have to just be able to ebb and flow and and find new things as, um, as evolution continues. But I do have systems in place, which, oh, (laughs) you know, you get so mired down and so overwhelmed when you're, in the suck that you don't even know how to start a system. You don't even know what's possible or it feels like too much effort um, to even get there. But boy, do they make a difference. So do you, I mean, I remember when someone sat me down and trained me how to use QuickBooks and it took months and I always say I had a box of tissue. <laughs> yep. And for crying breaks and lots of dark chocolate to nibble on um, along the way. And it took months and I always say, Bookkeeping systems take three to six months to learn and a year before you feel really confident. So do you do you have a tracking or bookkeeping bookkeeping system that you love right now, or do you have a bookkeeper? How are you how are you doing? I've, I've done it different ways. Um, I worked um, I used Bench for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was helpful, and I kind of learned a little bit that way. And I took a bookkeeping class, which um, was my version of hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just my. You know, I have the story. My brain doesn't work that way. And I'm pretty sure. And actually, it was in Santa Cruz. Um, it was uh, offered by um, some small business administration or something. I took that and realized that I wasn't going to be able to, able to be the one who did it. Um, 
<laughs> but I have some very basic systems that work. Yeah. Yeah. You mean like on paper or a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet? or Excel. Excel. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, there's some people do it by paper. Some people do Excel, right? Mm-hmm. Some people get a bookkeeper or use Bench. It's, it's right. all good. It's all good. Right. And I have a I have a pro look at things um, every now and then, make sure I'm on track. Okay, great. Um, hmm, where should we go? I I want to know. Um, your your son is still young and mm-hmm. uh, and a few years younger than my son. Yes. Are there any money teachings that you're aware of that you're trying to pass down to him um, that are different than what you received growing up, um, is there anything, yeah, any money conversations that you have with him? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so my, my parents, um, um, like I said, weren't exactly rolling in it. Um, my father was in the military um, for, a, while, for a, a good part of my childhood. And, but the thing is, they're both incredibly competent do-it-yourselfers. And so they would never pay somebody <laughs> to come over and fix something. They would just do it. My dad, you know, could have also been an electrician. He has that knowledge, and he learned it from his uncles and his dad. So they never hired anybody <laughs> to come and fix something. They felt like that was a waste of money. Mm-hmm. If you could do it yourself, even though it's going to take 12 times longer or, you know, whatever. Or maybe that's part of my story. But I hire professionals now. Okay. Like first few years, you know, my dad taught me how to change the oil in my car, so I'd save money on that. And uh, I used to change the oil in my car. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with that. That's great. It's just not. It's not my love. I'd much rather you know say, hey, these you know, these are trained professionals who who can do it uh, much more quickly than I can. But in terms of you know, so I what I value is a little bit different than what my parents valued in terms of spending money on. And I'm trying to share that with my son. So he gets an allowance. He gets a dollar per year for the how old he is. So right now he gets eight dollars a week uh, for his allowance. And part of that automatically goes into his savings. Part of that um, goes into, he has sponsored a boy his age in a different country. And so $2 of his allowance has to go to that and I cover the rest. I cover cover the other 50 bucks (laughs) a month for that. But that was how he wanted to feel like he was in contribution. And he also does fundraisers, he does lemonade stands, and he also tells jokes. Um, and raises money for the local animal shelter. Wow. wow. We're trying to do, he loves telling jokes. So this was a really good match. And we have some very kind neighbors who um, support that. So, but I'm really about, you also get to spend money. And that's what wasn't something that was necessarily told to me. You get to spend the money as well. I mean, you certainly had, I remember going to France in high school. Um, It was my first time in Europe. I loved it. It's amazing. But, you know, I was probably one of the only people on that trip who earned every dollar to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things my parents would match, but there was really an emphasis on if you want something, you have to earn it. And, you know, they when they could or when, it, when they felt it was appropriate, they might match a little bit of it. But so, so I'm, I'm teaching him that it's okay to spend some money. Make sure you're giving it to things that are important to you. Make sure you're saving some. Um, and it's okay to buy some Legos. Yeah. Is that, that is that one of his things? He likes to save up to spend on those Legos? Cause yes. Yeah, you yeah. have to save because they're expensive. Right now he's saving up so we can move to Legoland. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have part of the hotel, but uh, <laughs> you're yeah. welcome to play. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, what, I've only written two articles on money and kids because it's uh-huh. a complex topic. And I feel sure. like when my son's 18, then I can write more. Right. Uh, we're still figuring this out. But one of them was about how my son also saved for a big Lego set, you know, oh, how yeah. long it took and it was such a big thing and right. then the celebration of it and all of that. Right. Um, so what was, what was I thinking? I mean, are you going to have your son um, work at, as well like you did? Um, do you know that yet? He's eight. So you may not know that yet, but do you feel like you're going to have him work from the age of 15, 16? Um, he, he can't wait to. He just thinks, um, but he, you know, uh, he sees places where he wants to work now. Okay. And, you know, okay, how do I old do I have to be? So I think there's great value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, doing work that you love? Absolutely. I would love, I'd love for him to get that message right away and to do, you know, good work and, and treat people who, you know, I waited tables for a while and I loathed babysitting, even though I was really good at it. I feel like almost everybody, I know it's a little bit cliche, but if everybody waited tables or babysat, the world would be a much kinder place. <laughs> so I think that's really good to also, you know, beyond the financial piece to work and see how you get along with people and be out in the world. I think that's really important. Mm. I had to work at 15, 16, too. My father wanted to teach me mm-hmm. a strong work ethic. Yes. Ethic. And I hated the jobs at first, and I wished that I could do things that I loved, or and I didn't even know what that was at that right. time. So it sounds like your son already has so many interests. There are places that he's really looking forward to contributing, you know, right. with mm-hmm. animals or Legoland or so right. on. Right. Exactly. Wonderful. What um, do you feel is the money legacy that you are working on right now and that you want to leave? Mm, that is a really good question. You're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> You're really good at this. What is the money legacy? Um, I want money to be fun. Mm. I want to be able to earn money in ways that are fun for me. That meaning is really important for me. Um, it feels like I'm being in contribution um, to individuals, but to the, you know, in greater sense in, into the world. Redistribution of wealth is really important to me. Um, that we are not just, you know, we're, we're getting the money to where it needs to go. Um, I want to pay, pay my fair share of taxes, which makes some of my relatives go, what? You want to pay taxes? Um, I I value a lot of things from the Nordic countries um, in terms of social values. And I want, I don't want money to be a source of pain. Like it was so much for me starting off um, because I made it that it doesn't have to be. Okay. So were that, were those some of your first emotions um, growing up around money, it was more around pain. Um, yeah, and, and also I want to hear a little bit more about your lineage um, before we complete. Is it Nordic, and were you born there? And just share a little bit more about. Sure. So my, um, I'll, I'll start there. Um, 
I know I know my dad's history. Um, his genetic lineage is um, Spanish, Portuguese, and Cuban, and Irish. And um, my mom was adopted, so I didn't really know in terms of the biological uh, lineage. I didn't know that up until very recently. And um, I speak Norwegian. Well, it just happened. You know, in my 46th year, I actually discovered I have Norwegian ancestry. Um, that is <laughs> through some tests. So um, I am of Nordic. On my mom's side, I'm of um, Nordic, British, and Irish descent. So I grew up thinking I was um, Cuban, Spanish, Irish. Okay. Yeah. And always drawn to the Viking, Nordic. Yes, joined to a lot of things, but but yeah. really resonating there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah, just share a little bit more about this piece because I love the what the legacy is, everything that you talked about from meaning and fun mm-hmm. and deeper contribution and redistribution of wealth mm-hmm. and happily paying your share of taxes, mm-hmm. and that's that's how you're stewarding money at this time and that's how you're holding it and that's what you're wanting that's what you're living and moving into more and more and what you want to pass on right and i should say i would like a bigger bang for my buck my taxes i would like (laughs) it to go (laughs) a little further than it does but um in terms of I, I probably shouldn't have said that because I interrupted what you said. Yeah, no, sometimes I ask three different questions at once, and that's it's hard to follow. But here's the question <laughs> okay. um, when I'm in this mode is, yeah, because the very first question I usually ask is, what are the emotions around money for you? Oh, that's right. That's right. What, what okay. are they now? I didn't ask that. Yeah, what are they now? Yeah. What do you want to be growing into more, and what were they? So the, very, yeah. so the very first thing I really remember about money is I was probably about, six or seven and we were visiting my grandparents in florida where my dad is from actually i was living there at the time but went to visit my grandparents and my grandfather would always pay my sister and i to wash his truck he had a pickup truck and we'd wash it and we forget to do it he had already paid us and so there's this idea of uh that we we just didn't do it (laughs) and then we were kind of slackers um and then it didn't necessarily come from him, but I always felt this incredible guilt. You know, we never had the time to visit or whatever. But my dad came from a very blue-collar background. His dad is a longshoreman. And um, they worked physically hard. Um, everybody in his family worked very backbreakingly hard. And so the idea of earning a living was – it was tough. Yeah. It was hard. And you did it, and, and people who automatically had money, you know, didn't have muscles like the longshoremen did. You know, <laughs> you know what's wrong with them type of thing. So um, it was interesting to watch my dad grow up because he came from this very blue-collar background where there's this, you know, this is who we are and the other people kind of suck type of thing, to go into a very, after he left the Navy and retired, go into this white-collar world. And I saw him really have to navigate that of who am I? <laughs> you know, what is my identity? I'm this do-it-yourself guy um, and my mom to a great extent, too. So the initial thoughts around money was that um, if you paid for something, you could have just done it yourself to a great degree. And that changed over time watching my parents evolve. But, in, but as a child, um, 
you better save it. Don't lose it. And I remember losing, I lost some money on a trip. I left it in a hotel room. I was about eight or nine. And then I had this idea, she loses money. You know, she can't, she can't um, control, you know, be responsible with it, which is then I was always out to disprove. So it was painful. It, it, but I knew there was something else to it. Um, so, so money often was attached to pain or that you had to, um, it was hard to come by. And so you had to hold on to it dearly. And for the people who had it, you know, they were, um, they were of less substance. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these are some of the early money beliefs that were created and right. passed down to you. Yes. And that, and that you created in the moment, just one time losing money, then it, then it became, the story became, absolutely, I'm not responsible. And, right. Um, and so where do you think, I mean, as you're looking back, as, did you say 46 or 47? 46. Okay. So as a 46 year old, as you're looking back mm-hmm. and can review what you learned from mom and dad and where they came from, and a lot of the beliefs or messages, and then you watch them change, mm-hmm. you know, and grow into um, a different relationship with life and work and money. Mm-hmm. And then you move through your 20s and that whole experience. Do you have understanding and perspective of um, that journey and why you needed to go through all of that and how it played out in the way that it did? I think I do. Okay. I think I really needed to know um, how – I think I really needed to go through that journey so that I could do really good things with it later mm-hmm. and to be able to feel good about making it and making a lot of it and, um, and to know that I will not be irresponsible but that I will put it where my values are. Hmm. that I will, that it's okay. Now I, you know, I love earning money. I, um, it feels good to be able to pay something off and, and, um, or go on a trip or do things like that. It is fuel for the things that I'm, I'm passionate about, whether that is art or whether that is travel. That's really my big passion. Um, or, um, the animal shelter, helping kids, you know, it's just fuel for those passions. And I see that and I really want to have a lot more fuel. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. Anything else for this moment that's bubbling up as we're beginning to have conversations and you're sharing stories about your relationship to money, anything else that's coming up that you would be willing to share about your relationship to money? And what you've learned from either your parents that you're where you're different, what you had to go through, what you're passing on to your son, um, yeah, anything else? I think the main thing coming to my mind is there doesn't have to be shame, hmm. and that's so often our our go-to um, for a variety of reasons, but it starts to compound things, and you don't have to then shame yourself for being shame, feeling shame. Um, but just know there's so many people who feel that but have come to the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you think, I think so many of us, you know, my community is 25 to 75 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think many of us do go through the shame door um, as part of it. Um, Do you think that it can be different for your son? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And when when you said that and when you asked that question, Barry, do you think it can be different? My almost my initial reaction is it has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It has to be. And I mean, it's not that like he'll never go to therapy. Maybe he'll go to therapy one day. You know, my son's probably, like, I don't know. I would hope he would. Absolutely. I, I hope he does. <laughs> go to therapy one day. It doesn't mean we're not going to have things to work on. Oh, not at all. <laughs> but that we may, that he won't have to go through the shame doorway that, They'll have watched us mm-hmm. um, take millions of baby steps, or we'll tell them about the millions of baby steps. Absolutely. Yeah, of mm-hmm. how things were when we were younger and what we've had to go through um, and, and yeah, what we've had to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to show him, show them a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That we get it, to- is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. I love it. Yeah, to be passing on a different money legacy um Mm. that's been passed down for a long time yes so randy how can folks find you online sure so um if you go to www.myname which is randy with an i buckley.com you will find me and um i am on instagram randy.buckley somebody already took randy buckley (laughs) <laughs> um, and um my podcast is on on all the regular places you get podcasts like itunes and that's called sideways truth wonderful thank you so much for my sharing pleasure. thank you so much for having me thank you for joining me with this money memoir interview i really hope you found something here to take with you whether it was a lesson some inspiration or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.